I'm Vic Cohen, and it's a fair question. It's a fair question. It's a fair question. I'm Vic Cohen, and it's a fair question. It's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair question. I'm Vic Cohen, and it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair quest, quest, question. Hello, this is Vic Cohen, and it is a fair question. It is always a fair question. You're listening to us live from beautiful, stunning downtown Los Angeles is Skid Row Studios. We are right by the corner of 7th and Olive. If you want to come by and say hi or look us up on the GPS. Um, the reason I call the show It's a Fair Question is because on this show, there is no question that is ever too personal or ever off limits. That's right. Any question is a fair question. And tonight we are talking about something that is really serious and I find very disturbing. It's something that um, the hyperbole, the Hollywood or the uh, press hyperbole, be it's rocked Hollywood or mm. all of America is talking. I hate when people say that. How do we know what all of America is talking about? But I can tell you this. I, Vic Cohen, am very upset and um, saddened by what happened with the very surprising death of Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, and I know a lot of my friends and people who uh, who loved his work and just people in general who who uh, saw a young, relative young guy still in the prime of his career, a father of three, get cut down by uh, addiction, heroin addiction. Now, just a reminder, it was about four days ago, Sunday morning, that Philip Seymour Hoffman was discovered on his Greenwich Village bathroom floor, lying on his side, boxers and T-shirt, the needle stuck in his left arm, reading glasses still on his head. It's like shot up and just dropped. Subsequently, police have found nearly 70 baggies of heroin. That's what's been reported. Of course, that number constantly is changing, but at this very moment as I am broadcasting, it's 70 baggies. There are reported to have been 50 of them that were still full. And clearly what was happening... Um, Seemingly, with all those bags of heroin, uh, this wasn't going to be just one shot. Now, just to remind you a little bit about Philip Seymour Hoffman, not only is he a great actor, but as I mentioned, he has three kids. He has a 10-year-old son, Cooper. He has two daughters, seven-year-old and a five-year-old. And you got to ask yourself, or I'll ask, I'll say I've got to ask myself, and maybe you have, I'm not sure, but I certainly have, is why? I mean, this guy had everything. I mean, if you've seen these kids, go Google them online. Look up Philip Seymour Hoffman and look up children, and you're going to see these kids. He takes he was taking them everywhere in New York. I mean, really cute kids. Had a, a partner 14 years, a woman who clearly loved him. And there were reports they were having troubles. But this guy had a life. That, um, you know, if you were to sit down and write down, what, what do I want in life? You know, everyone, most people have uh, done a, uh, an Oscar speech in front of the mirror or imagine themselves winning some kind of award, kind of fame he had. A-list celebrity friends, money, tons of money. And... Just from observing him, uh, not having met him myself, he certainly seemed to be a guy who didn't revel in celebrity and seemed kind of to be a guy who who uh, who wasn't bowled over by it, 
who didn't define himself by it, certainly. Although, of course, that's just speculation. I was never obviously in his head and never spoke with him. But it's a real tragedy, obviously. And um, it's upset me because, uh, not only because he's a really talented guy, but, um, you know, I think that most of us, whether we realize it or not, or I'll say for myself, I mean, I've had some issues around addiction at times, I would say around sex or love or food, those kind of things. But I've never stuck a needle in my arm. I was, I never thought you could, you know, I, I, I never thought like, like jerking off, you can't die from, <laughs> you know, I'm a neurotic Jew. I'm afraid of death. I, you never found a guy dead in his bathroom floor on his floor with his dick in his hand. I've never seen that, but, um, maybe, maybe there's someone out there that has happened to, um, but you know, it, it's really amazing. I want the hour we're going to talk over this hour, we're going to talk about heroin addiction in particular. And I found a guy who we are really lucky to have. And, you know, sometimes things happen and I don't understand why they happen or how they happen, but they just happen. And you realize, I realize that's exactly how they were supposed to happen. Now I'm talking to you Wednesday night. I did not have a guest for this show yesterday um, probably at this time, no one, I knew what I wanted to talk about. I'd put out calls. So what I did is I knew I wanted to talk about Philip Seymour Hoffman's death because I was upset about it. And I think it needs to be talked about in a new different kind of way than I'm seeing the way it's being talked about. So I wanted to learn about narcotics and where best to go than a place where I went to a place that supports narcotic addicts. And, we, and I listened to their stories and I was moved and I was also impressed by uh, the gratitude that many of these people had and how their lives have changed. But also I saw how quickly things can change and shift from sobriety and gratitude to losing everything just from being in a room for an hour and a half. Mm. And I came across, I talked to a fellow in this room and he, I told him I was looking for someone for my show. And through a conversation, I ended up talking to our guest. Never met this guy sitting across from me till last night on a phone call. And he was, he, he was amazingly just so open to coming out here. And, you know, he is a, a world expert in when it comes to addiction. He helps people uh, deal with heroin addiction in their own personal battles, running his own business. And... He's also a recovered heroin addict. And his name is Doug Kane. Hello, Doug. Hi, Vic. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Now, as I shared at the beginning of this show, I'm petrified of needles. <laughs> how could you stick a needle in your arm? It's a good question. My answer is how could you not? How could you not stick a needle right. in your arm? Right. Seriously? Well, I mean, we all are scared of needles, aren't we? I was. Weren't you uh, scared of dying? When I was a little kid. Um, it's a really good question. And actually, to answer your question, I got to refer to something you said when you were talking about <clears throat> Philip Hoffman. Yes. You said, this guy has a life, right? This yeah. guy has a life that anybody would want. Right. But what we saw is not his life. 
So what we saw, children. Well, we saw pictures of kids, and here's an incredible, brilliant, talented actor, Academy Award winner, Academy. Right. right. But we didn't see his life. We saw his performance and a portrayal of his life that's presented to us. So you tell me what was his life. Because I'm curious. Maybe you know. You would probably have a better idea, wouldn't you? Um, in a general way, yeah, I do. His life consisted, sadly, in part, of hiding, of fear, and of shame. Of? Look, I don't know I didn't know. I know some guys who knew him. So I'm not here to tell you what he was afraid of. I don't know what happened to him. I don't know if he was made an addict or born an addict. But he was a heroin addict. And until four days ago, were you aware of that? We knew that I had heard he'd gone into rehab. I didn't know the extent of what was going on with him. Right. So what, what everybody knows about Philip Seymour Hoffman is talented, brilliant, Loving children, right? Yes. Success. Yes. We didn't know, right? We didn't know. And that's the thing about addiction in general, heroin addiction in particular, is the hiding. You didn't know, and I didn't know, that he was sitting in the village shooting dope in his arm. Someone knew. Yeah, the guys who were dealing dope knew. Probably his, some people close to him knew. Sure. His friends. Right. How about people he's going to meetings to, with if he were going to meetings? If he was going to meetings, then if he was being honest and not hiding it from those people, then they knew it too. Well, he's reportedly told someone recently that who said, hey, you look familiar. And this was at Sundance. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, uh, are you, whoever he goes, I'm a, I'm a heroin addict. Mm -hmm. That's what he said. I guess that's different than saying I'm shooting heroin right now. Right. I'm a heroin addict too, and I haven't put a needle in my neck for a number of years. Okay, let's stop right there. Oop. You didn't say arm, you said neck. Neck, arm, yeah. You Where stuck a needle in your in your neck? When the arms give way, you find veins wherever you can. Some people shoot dope into the large vein in the penis. <sighs> If they're lucky and blessed enough to have a large vein in their penis, or if they're I lucky. would say mine's not quite as. <laughs> I'd be tapping hard to Mag find it. Magnifying <laughs> glass and tweezers. You can get it anywhere. You can find it anywhere. Um, when you heard about Phillips passing, what were your first thoughts as a recovering heroin addict? Thoughts. Um, I so first experience was sadness. That I wouldn't get to see him anymore. He wouldn't gift me anymore with those performances. Um, as a recovered addict, as somebody who's been freed, my thoughts were, here's somebody who returned to slavery. Not on the strength of a 12 years of slave story, mm -hmm. but on the strength of a chronic, progressive, and fatal illness whose ends are always the same, jails, institutions, and death. And sadly for Mr. Hoffman, his was death. How long have you been sober from heroin? I, uh, I stopped shooting dope for real in 99. I had a relapse in 08. So whatever that makes me off of dope. Four years, five years. That's not a long time ago. Pardon me? Four or five years ago is not a lot of time. It's an interesting question. If you walk down to 7th Street 
and talk to the guys who are currently strung out or currently kicking or currently trying desperately to get into a detox, detox for which there's no state or county money, five years seems like forever. Did that feel bad when I said that? Because I wasn't trying to minimize no, it. No, it just is what it is, you know. In Be- the same way that we perceive Philip Seymour Hoffman as an actor, I loved him in Truman, I loved him in everything, and now I perceive him as a grown man lying on the floor in a bathroom in the village in boxers with a needle in his arm. Mm-hmm. That'll never change. And what's your point in that? My point is that I see him now differently than I've ever seen him. I'll always carry with me the knowledge of his brilliant performances. I now add to that the knowledge of the depth of his despair. There's a deeper level there. And when you talk about five years isn't a long time or 14 years isn't a long time or whatever, that's really a question of perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I got a little more hair than you. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> Is that about perspective? It's about perspective. <laughs> well, uh, and I know that a big uh, slogan in recovery is one day at a time. Mm-hmm. So whether one has five years or, you know, 50 years, it's still one day at a time. It is, always. Now, uh, being that you had, um, would you say you had a relapse then? Oh, Yeah. That qualifies as a relapse. If you don't shoot heroin and then you shoot heroin, that what? qualifies. Okay, so, you know, uh, what happened? Oh, how long were you sober between the... Re- the? Oh, I had just around nine years, just breathing around the corner of nine years. From shooting heroin? Right. Did you think you had it licked? I did think I had it licked. And sad to say, as an addiction treatment professional, as someone who had, for a number of years been freed of obsession and compulsion it's a very dangerous place to be it's a very arrogant place for me to find myself so what happened that led you to the relapse um wow that's a great question i'd love to get into the specifics of it but i don't want to disperch to besmirch an ex's name so what i'll say is there was a traumatizing event in okay my life. so you had an event in a relationship of some sort oh yeah that spun you out it spun me out okay yeah, and it's funny how addiction works, and I don't know what happened with Philip Seymour Hoffman, but I know in my case, the traumatizing event happened, and then it wasn't for another five or six months that I relapsed. Mm-hmm. I was still running around, doing my job, making money, being a daddy to my son, you know, doing what I needed to do. The disease, they say, is cunning, baffling, and powerful. If you want to attra- attribute human <laughs> attributes to a disease, we call it cunning, baffling, and power. So you are a professional sobriety um, person. Right. <laughs> you know, um, you've had a number of years. Was it nine, did you say? I'm sorry, I keep getting a block. And how many you had? It was just nine. Okay. Just before nine so years. Then you end up in a relationship, and that seemed to be the um, what launched you into a... It's, relapse. it's interesting. It's a good way to phrase the question because that's the Peshat. That's how it seems at, on, at the top level. The truth is I could have lived through anything had I been living the right way and I knew how to live the right way. Had I been doing my regular meetings, going to some therapy, been involved in a relationship with God, which I knew how to do and had done. Any traumatizing event is something you can stay sober through. But I'd gotten so busy with my fancy little life that I was letting pieces of the program go. 
it may be the case that that's what happened with Mr. Hoffman. It may be something different. I don't know. Yeah, it's an interesting um, parallel. I mean, right. you know, right. the sense that you had some time from, mm -hmm. from this addiction, and then here, and then next thing you know, you're looking for a vein. Is that right? Yes, exactly right. That's right. How many times would you say you shot up in your life? I can't count that high. Would you say over ten thousand? Uh, yes. Really? Yeah. How old were you when you started? Uh, young? I don't remember. Ten? No, 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 no. I wasn't ten. I was at least eleven. <laughs> um, um, were you bar first, mitzvah? Was it after your bar mitzvah? It was definitely. I was a bar mitzvah buche, and I okay. remember my parsha and all that <laughs> stuff. It was later in life. I was well into my late teens, twenty, twenty years old, maybe. Okay. Did, wasn't there something in you that said, if I put this needle in my arm, I could die? Yes, that was fine. Because you were unhappy with life? Mm, great question. Um, yes, unhappy with life. Um, and again, unhappy with life is a real simple way to describe it. I know, it. I know. Yeah, I yeah. And, I, and I get that we have a few minutes to talk. So yes, unhappy, sad, depressed, traumatized, you name it. Were you abused as a child? I was, in fact. Mm. Uh, sexually? Yes, that's right. Physically? Emotionally? Yes, 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 yes. Well, if you're sexually abused, then you would be a physically, and you'd be emotionally. I think they would all bundle yeah. into one. Agreed. So you had no, uh, did you have any therapy as a child around no. that? No. This was back in the day, you know what I mean? You didn't talk about anything, right. nobody talked to you about anything. So. Okay. Yeah. So you're walking around as a young man. So you're walking around carrying that stuff, and whatever I could find, weed, booze, it didn't matter. Is this San Francisco? Yes, San Francisco, San Mateo, Santa Cruz. Where you were raised. Right. Okay. So um, one day I'm in Hate Street in San Francisco, and I remember like it was yesterday, 150 Hate Street, apartment 507. Really? <laughs> I was facing north. It was about 4.30 in the afternoon. I've been trying to get some What day heroin. of the week was that? It's a fine question. I have no idea. We'll have to look later. We'll have to. After the show. Definitely, definitely. So with my buddy, and um, we both grew up reading... Jim Carroll and William Burroughs and we, you know what I mean. We listened to Coltrane and Davis and all the junky jazz musicians. We had a very romantic image about what heroin was. Were you a musician? I was. Yeah, bass player. Okay. So um, we finally figured out this is how we're going to get a little dope. And we got a little dope. And I remember staring out the window, watching the fog come in. I don't remember, it was 4 or 15, something in the afternoon. Uh, looking north at Cathedral Hill, here comes the fog. Now I feel the dope. And I knew immediately, I will go to jail for this. I will suck dicks for this. I will take beatings for this. I will be homeless for this. That's fine. I knew it like that. And were you right? Uh, yes, 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 and yes. <laughs> okay. Set, set, Question set. is, were there more dicks sucked than jails visited? You know, it's funny <laughs> because I wasn't quite as pretty. By my mid twenties, as I was, you are when I was a handsome a teenager. man. I will You're say sweet, that. and thank yes. you very much. But it's not happening tonight, <laughs> princess. Oh, it's still early. <laughs> People are like, "Is this real or not?" <laughs> oh, it's real. It's real. Yeah. So, uh, so you're nine. You're. Did you say you're nineteen? No, no, I was in my twenties. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. And let me um, go into that moment. You're putting the needle in your arm. Who's? Are you administering it yourself? Yeah, actually, on that one, we... The very first. The, the first time we did it, we snorted it. Okay. And I, I mean, it sounds a little theatrical, but I, I really want to know the truth in this. <laughs> okay. You really take one sniff and you were that intuitive 
to know, to think to yourself, I am willing to suck dicks. I'm willing to go to jail. I want this and I will do whatever I get. Like you really went through a laundry list of, or are you now looking back and kind nope. of summarizing? In that, no, in that moment, I remember having read, uh, one of my favorite books is The Basketball Diaries. Not that horrid movie they made of it, but the book itself. Okay. Uh, by Jim Carroll. Fascinating read. Um, and I went through this litany of, well, these are the things Jim Carroll described in his book that he, as a young man, had to do as a result of being on heroin. And here's the thing, man. There are some people who can take any drug or any kind of booze or whatever, and it works for them like magic. I'm one of those who is genetically predisposed to love opiates. Mm -hmm. Some people, I call them wimps take an opiate and feel nauseous. That's me. That's you. I know. I feel <laughs> we talked so about bad. that earlier. I feel so bad. Yeah, I can't even drink a teaspoon right. of, take a teaspoon of coating <laughs> and I get so nauseous. A teaspoon of coating for me is an aperitif. I'm ready to rock <laughs> after that. So it felt like I was a 1964 and a half Mustang that the engine just got turned over for the first time in right. 1980 something. But don't you it felt yeah. that good? So do you per think perhaps had you not read that novel, um, you wouldn't have found it so romantic? No, nope. it wouldn't have mattered. The novel, um, you know, growing up as a jazz bow, listening to those horn players, uh, all the rock musicians, being a musician myself, it seemed almost like a natural progression. In fact, it seemed like it was just going to happen, and the question was when. It was kind of part of the job. <laughs> yeah, but there's no benefits and no pension for that part of the job. Right. Some Especially scabs. now. Well, now there's Obamacare. That helps. But yeah. a little different. A little different. Yeah. What about um, the first time you shot up? When oh, was that? And how? Same as that. I was actually, that? Um, Take us through that. Uh, um, first time I shot up, I was in Big Sur. Oh, that's a story. We'll have to talk about that off radio sometime. Okay. Um, yeah. That was uh, his name? <laughs> no, sir. Back to the sucking His name was Arnie. He was an interior designer, and I was a very young man at the time. And he shot me up with some cocaine, and I loved it. Is that it. true? Yes, that's the first. Wait. I was on Pfeiffer Ridge in Big Sur. And Gordon. you met a, a man? Yeah, and I, I was living in this guy's house. Look, the bottom line is we all have very funny, circuitous stories that bring us to syringes. Okay. It just so happened this guy was uh, wealthy with a big Beamer 7 before everybody had them, you know. Right. Drove me up to Big Sur and says, we're going to shoot some cocaine, Doug. I said, oh, okay, great. You shot cocaine? Yeah, that was the first time. That was the first time I... I didn't know people shot cocaine. Oh, how do you know? Is that called a highball? Or is that when you mix it with heroin? <laughs> the highball is something on the Mad Men episode. You might want to look at Obama's <laughs> recent speech. No, didn't Belushi a die from... speedball. Oh, sorry. Okay, that's yeah. how I little I know, okay? I you know, I know I sound like a geek... In the drug language world. I may sound like a drug fetishist. Who knows? No, but, but you so know, I'm scared ball, of drugs. I understand that. And, and you're really smart to be scared. So speedball is a combination of uh, heroin and cocaine in, injected intravenously. Okay. Got it. Yeah. So uh, this man uh, injected you with cocaine. Right. And it was brilliant. Loved it. And then after a few more injections, the cocaine was all gone and I was kind of whiny. We drank our way out of it. That was it. And then what was the first heroin injection of like? Um, back in San Francisco, once I had snorted it and figured out how to do that, I could not wait to do an IV injection of heroin. So I did a little bit because I wanted to be safe. <laughs> you weren't scared of dying? I mean, 
the truth is I was more scared of ending up in a wheelchair. So I didn't want to be one of these OD guys who falls out of a window. So I just okay. shot a little bit. And again, I had that same experience. The rush, the warmth, the absolute absence of neurosis, the absence of fear, the absence of self-obsession, concern, anything. Everything was whitewashed from me. Early 20s, moment. this is going on. Yeah. And how quickly was, how soon after the snorting was the shooting of the heroin? Within a, couple, a year? I, no, a couple of days. Oh, this all happened within a couple of days? Oh, yeah. When was the coke shooting? That, also a few years the, before that. Oh, okay. Yeah. I see. So the heroin snorting went to this heroin injection. Right, immediately. Okay. Uh, did you share needles? Over the course of my career, I did. Uh, do you ha did you uh, catch anything? No, I did not. You're not HIV positive? I'm not. Uh, what about hepatitis? Got hepatitis C many years later as a result of a tattoo. But how do you know it was from a tattoo? Because I've been tested for hep C a million times over okay. the years and always negative. I didn't, you know, that's really scary, too. That's another episode. <laughs> <laughs> so um, when you think back at Philip in his death, mm. do you think ever, like, um, not to make yourself seem too self-important, but had I just had an hour with him, I could have helped him. Or if someone like myself had an hour with him or a minute with him. I think that would be a pretty haughty, arrogant statement for me to make. And maybe if I had 10 days, a couple of weeks with him, it's possible that I could have allowed him to see something he couldn't see at that time. Mm -hmm. But then I'm not the only man who might have done that. Any number of recovered addicts could have done that for, for, for that man. There are a couple of specifics about the story mm. that I don't understand because I don't know that world. And I would love it if you could help clarify that for us, okay? I'll give it a shot. 70 baggies, they say, were found. 50 unopened. Is that a lot? <sighs> um, the answer is it depends upon the level of your habit at the time. If he's doing three to four bags of dope in every shot and that's what he needs to get well and he's doing that three or four times a day, then that's not a lot. How many baggies did you go through in a day? So in New York, they, they call them papers. It's a little glassine envelope, a bindle, they call it. Okay. A, blind, a bindle is a the bindle. same as a glassine envelope. Right. Okay. So um, it could be a folded up piece of paper and there's okay. a little bit of heroin in there. Um, you know what, the, the funny thing about, and, and what they do in Los Angeles, they sell it in balloons, those teeny tiny little balloons. What kind of, I don't know those balloons. Like animal, balloon animals? No, no. <laughs> You're a funny guy. I'm serious. Like Joe Pesci and Goodfellas. I don't know, I don't know. Um, you know what a big balloon looks yeah, like? Yeah, like a Imagine a balloon? teeny tiny balloon about the size of the tip of your pinky. Okay. There are such balloons. Okay. You might have seen For them. little people. For little, little people. people birthday parties. For little children, let's say. <laughs> okay, yes. I got right. it. Okay, yeah. the small little balloon. Right. So what'll happen is a guy will spit a piece of heroin into a balloon. Why okay. is he spitting it? Because a lot of times he'll chop it in his teeth. and The dealer you're talking about? Right. Okay. And, and, or you chop it with a knife and place it in a balloon. Okay. And they wrap a little knot in the end of the balloon. Okay. And that balloon of heroin is what we call a bag that goes for somewhere between 15 and $20. And that's, what, that's the L.A. West Coast way of doing it. That's the West Coast way, homie. Yeah. 
East Coast is in a, a glass scene they called envelope, which is that waxy-ish, transparent-looking right. envelope. You, like the post office gives stamps and are used to. Right. That would be, okay. Right, right. They call that a paper of dope. That's okay. a paper. In and a bundle, a bundle is a certain number of papers of dope bundled together with a rubber band. So a bundle of dope might be five papers. Anyway, look, man, it doesn't matter. The truth is the guy had a lot of heroin in his apartment, and he was injecting it, and he had a habit, right? Mm -hmm. So was he doing a lot of dope? Yeah, he was doing a lot of dope. When you're in your mid-40s and you're addicted to opiates and you've been addicted for some time, you can no longer get by with, I'll just do a little bit. You don't even feel it. You got to pick up where you left off or you, even go yeah, bigger. Right. Always go bigger. Always. Is that what you did in your relapse? Always. Yes. Okay. Did you come close to dying? I did. I was hospitalized a number of times. Uh, EMTs picked me up. Yeah, I was blue. Yeah, it was bad. In the relapse? Yeah, and it took no time for that to start happening. No time. It happened more than once in the relapse? Yes, yes it did. Yeah. Were you trying to kill yourself? It's a good question. I don't know. I would say yes. Does that make you a better sober coach for the experience? Or would you say it makes you not a better one? Like, you mm. know what I mean? Like, could it go both ways? Um, I would think it would make you better because you've been on both sides. <laughs> right. Yes. I'd say it makes me a better sober coach. All of my clients are people with multiple relapses. And now I get to say, yeah, me too. And I get it. And I found a way to pull my head out of my ass. And I found a way to keep it out of my ass for a little while. So I'm going to show you how. So that's great. The other thing it did for me, because I don't care about the sober coaching career. Maybe I'll end up as a writer or a fluffer or whatever it is that you do. Um, <laughs> Both. <laughs> a rougher. So um, what it made me is it made me less arrogant. And it made me more of a real person. It made me a better dad. It made me a better friend. It made me a better human being overall. And it's sad that such a, a violent, pathetic way of harming yourself is what it took for me to become a better person. But I guess I had to go to hell and back and then go to hell and back. And that's what it took. Yeah. Mm. I think that a lot of people will look at a, um, will look at an addict, particularly when it comes to heroin. Mm-hmm. And say things like, why would you even start? Right. You know, you're not stupid. <laughs> you were reading all these novels. Bright right. guy. Right. You know that if you put a needle in your arm, you could get addicted mm -hmm. and maybe die. Mm -hmm. So some people would say, shame on you. Your fault. Why should I feel bad for you? You knew better. Stupid. It's not my feeling. Right. Some people will say that. A number are of they the wrong? members of but the House of Representatives would I know, say that. but are they yeah. wrong? Yes, in fact, they're wrong most of the time. And there are some dilettante, bourgeois, bored with life types <laughs> who will decide to play with heroin because now it's the thing. Mm -hmm. About that very, very small subset of a subset of people. I would say the same thing. What the fuck is wrong with you? Right. But for most people to take up a drug that has the reputation heroin has, there must be something acting inside your psyche, in your brain, that's driving you to need release. And whatever you're doing, 
sex, gambling, hookers, money, whatever, isn't working. Yeah, you know, this is a great, I'm having like, I hate to be so, so corny with like an aha moment, but this is an aha moment for me, not because I ascribe to what I was describing as an right, attitude, right. but because of the very nature of someone who is bright, sticking a needle in their arm, mm-hmm. knowing mm-hmm. that they could die, mm-hmm. that's a sign of someone who's really sick. There you go. Not someone who's just right. trying to get a thrill and right. knows better. Right. It's, an, it's like the right. ultimate in evidence of, wow, what a, what a sad mental state this person is. So you hit the nail on the head, and that's the real deal with most addiction, is that while there is certainly a small percentage of humans who are genetically predisposed toward a particular substance or another. The vast majority of people I know from my personal experience in my recovery going to 12-step meetings and as a professional for years and years, there is at least one co-occurring disorder in just about every addict I've ever met. It could be depression, mania, bipolar. It could be some personality disorder. It can be trauma. It can be multiple traumas. Uh, there are a number of physical conditions. Look, untreated diabetes can put you into such a foul mood as can untreated hypertension, can actually change your personality, can recreate depression and physical pain. I always love the saying that, the idea that the it's not, the addiction isn't the addiction, it's not about what it's about. It's not about wanting to get mm. the high, the, uh, stick in the needle in the arm right. and, or about getting loaded with alcohol or whatever it is. Right, right. That's the symptom of something that's going on deep inside. And that's the opportunity to get curious. Mm-hmm. So when someone like Philip Seymour Hoffman or anyone goes to such lengths to mm-hmm. numb out, mm-hmm. it's really an opportunity, in his case, a very sad one and a late one, mm-hmm. to really ask the questions and to get very curious as to what was going on inside. Right. Because it wasn't that... Philip Seymour Hoffman, like you said, was like, you know, it was either doing uh, polo, playing polo, or uh, shooting heroin because he needed, he was bored. It wasn't like that. Right. It didn't seem like that. So it, and and, and, um, perhaps to back up or refocus, um, I, I, of course, I'm a natural human. I have some curiosity. Hmm. I wonder what was driving Mr. Hoffman. I wonder what his drivers were. Was there a co-occurring disorder? Whatever that was. I'm curious about it. For me, the curiosity is how do we take somebody, whether he's an actor or a street sweeper, how do we take somebody who's identified and acknowledged a problem with substance use, and then how do we foster an environment where that person feels safe continuing to maintain abstinence? Because that's the key. Whatever troubled him, whatever bothered him, whatever thing or things they were, probably never stopped bothering him, but he did find a way to get release. In those periods of release... 23 years you're talking about? The sobriety? Of Philip Seymour Hoffman? Yeah. I don't know the number of years he had. Well, that's what it was, reported to be. Reported to be. 22, 23. The other thing that's really interesting, which I think is important to bring up, is that there's this number of, like I said, 22, 23 years of sobriety, but I think what people forget when they throw that number around is... Sobriety is different than not using. Oh, yeah. So someone can go 23 years without shooting up heroin mm-hmm. and be just as much an addict 
as when they were shooting up. They're just not shooting up. Completely. And if you don't get your co-occurring... Explain that. Dis- I think you well, need to explain that. Okay. I, I think that's important. So here, here's my experience. When yeah. I finally stopped after years of trying to stop, 99, I'm facing eight and a half years in prison. I went to a halfway... You are facing eight and a half years of prison. Right. For went, your drug use. For a number of things we'll related to, to the drug use. Okay, go ahead. So um, I had an opportunity to stop, and I found a pathway out. I found a way to become a healthier, more healed, healing person. And I stayed on that path for a long time. I became seduced, and perhaps Mr. Hoffman became seduced, by bright, sparkly things. Whatever those were in my case, in his case, I don't know. And I began to focus less and less attention on those safe, healing, intimate places where I could be a real person. And I started to spend a little more focus every week, month, or year on the bright, sparkly things. And there is a tipping point. At some point in 2007 or 2000, whenever, I went over the edge. I paid not enough attention to what worked to keep me abstinent. And I paid too much attention to the added data. What was it that worked that kept you sober that you were no longer paying attention to as much? Hmm. Uh, A couple of things. Loving service. um, A certain spiritual practice that I had begun. A certain amount of religious practice I experimented with. Regular meeting attendance at some of those 12-step meetings. And taking the 12 steps. Working the 12 steps in your daily life. Right. And so when I was doing that, whether I was doing a bunch of meetings every week or a few meetings every week, at least I was doing that. Um, The more I started to focus on external things, not staying a healed, loving Doug, but getting another money, a piece of money or a car or a whatever, right? All that stuff doesn't have to exist the exclusion of the healing but in my case it began to do so what about the trauma were you ever treating the trauma um not effectively enough and i needed to treat that and it was only after i started coming back that i found an effective method to treat the trauma okay and just to get hit this right on on the nose so to speak on the head the idea is there there are people that are called they're called they're sober drunks uh, in the sense of, uh, isn't, I think that's the term where the idea is that y- they're white knuckle drunks, like they're not drinking, but they're they're still in the they have the persona or right. the uh, right. let's say the spiritual uh, challenges mm-hmm. as someone drinking, right. but they're just not drinking. Right. So that's why, you know, when I said if you can be real clear on, is, is that your explanation then of someone can be not using but not be sober? in the sense that the sparkly things, maybe it's money or women or something right. outside is, it's not. I have some good language for you. Okay. In, in some of the 12 step programs, they use this phrase clean and sober. Right. Mm-hmm. And so clean means I am abstinent from substances of abuse. And thank God I'm abstinent. Sober means not only am I abstinent, but I am actively engaged in serving other people. I'm actively engaged, whether it's in a 12-step program or in a church, mosque, or synagogue, or social service, whatever. I'm actively engaged. 
in healing and caring and being an intimate person, an authentic person. Some people can maintain being clean for years, just abstinent, and it's enough for them, and they don't really feel the need to change. And God bless them. I wish I was one of those guys. I tried that. It didn't work for me. I needed the full boat. You know what I mean? So there's clean and there's clean and sober. It sounds to me like if Hoffman had 23 years off of all mood and mind-altering substances, it sounds like he was doing some real work, inside work, to, to, be, to be a free man. And it sounds to me like, as if I knew him, but it sounds to me like the sparkly stuff got the better of him. And again, that's just speculation. That's speculation. Because we don't know. I don't know. Well, we do know that from what's been reported that uh, his his partner, uh, uh, they had broken up or were in a moment of separation mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. because she wanted him away supposedly from the family while he was dealing with his addiction. Mm-hmm. That's all rumor and what's been reported. Certainly that would be traumatic for anyone. We don't know if that's what pushed him over the edge, contributed to it. We don't know. No. There's no, there's, there's no knowing. I and think you know what? There's yeah. a little piece here about, on, on, and this is on the heroin piece specifically. Yeah. Um, but once you're in your mid forties, once you've been a dopamine for a long time, you may think you know how much you need. And the trick bag is you don't. You may know how much you need just to get well, so that you're not feeling dope sick that morning. But you don't always know exactly how much you need in order to try to get high. And it sounds like he was doing a little more than just staying well. It sounds like he was trying to get high. We run after that initial imprint of the high, that what I described to you a million years ago in San Francisco on Hate Street, that high, I ran and chased after that experience of heroin for a few decades never really finding it again. Same thing with the shooting cocaine. Like that, for those first imprints, first whatever year or two I was doing that, great. The remainder of the next 20 years, trying to recover that, trying to refine that again, couldn't do it. Isn't it important for addicts to know that it probably can't be replicated before the chase? So... Yes, it's important and it's theoretical because for some people it can be replicated. Some people's okay. bodies and brain. Well, we don't need to tell them. We can look, just lie. Look, we can <laughs> we can do a Nancy Reagan thing if you want, and we can <laughs> ring around in a posy and where's your balloons? I mean, I, you know, <laughs> that's a reference. I don't know, but I don't think Nancy Reagan. I know Nancy Reagan. But right, I just say no. Oh, okay. Yeah, I forgot that was her whole. And ring around the posies is don't pretend you don't know what I'm talking about. You and me later, right? I don't know that, Vic. Okay. Sorry. Okay. I've let you down. Thanks. I know. Again. <laughs> Again. So how big a problem is heroin really in this country? Because I, I did some research and health officials say that there are 666,000 Americans who were using heroin in 2012. And that was double what was used in 2007. Now, when I heard that number, I didn't even think that was a lot. 660,000. That seemed like nothing. I haven't the faintest idea how many people are doing dope. I do know that it's a problem in every state in the country. And I do know that from where I live in Santa Monica to where we happen to be sitting right now in downtown Los Angeles, 
some people are dying tonight from heroin. A lot of people, I, I'm, I'll speak for myself. Mm. I think that's a good idea. I know me pretty well. I, I don't want to speak for you, all you guys listening, but I always feel like I don't really know anyone who's doing heroin. Like, I always feel like, you know, those people just, I, I just don't, I'm not, I don't hang out with them. I don't hang out with that crowd because I don't mm -hmm. do drugs like that or really any drugs. So what are the, what do you think the likelihood is that every day I run into someone, talk to someone or I'm in the same room with someone either who's high on heroin or has, is recovering from a heroin addiction? Um, chances are extremely high. I mean, you live, what part of town do you live in? I, I live near Hollywood. Live near Hollywood. Yeah. Okay, so Van Nuys. Okay. No. So. <laughs> no, I live on the other side. Okay, got it. Near West Hollywoodish, that kind of part of town. Understood. Hollywood, West Hollywood, there. Um, I cannot guarantee it, and there's no way you can quantify or qualify this. Uh, but you run into people every day who are recovering from addictions of one form or another. And you may not know it if you saw me walking down the street wearing a nice tie from Savile Row. You might not think, oh, that guy was shooting heroin in his neck a few years ago. Right. Right? Because we clean up pretty good, right? You look great. Right. So do you. But you haven't done it in a long time either. Right. It's been a few minutes. But the thing is... <laughs> <laughs> the might thing, feel like it. Right. So the thing is, like, um, the goal of recovery, the real goal of recovery is not just freedom from obsession and compulsion. The goal is to integrate, to become a responsible, productive member of society. So you shouldn't know that I was a dope fiend. And these people you meet uh, selling you coffee at Starbucks or shining your sh shoes or wherever, w what do you care if they used to be on dope or if they're doing dope right now, right? Why do I care? Right, does it matter? It doesn't matter. I'm just saying that I don't, I think if I knew if there was a little red light, mm. I would probably see more what the problem, that how big the problem is. The problem is so largely and you know, so well hidden. Because you don't know right. if the Starbucks girl is right. uh, had shot some heroin before her shift. I mean, right. not that it matters either way as long as she can make the coffee. I mean, <laughs> not to be rude. I'm just saying like, I don't have, a, I don't discriminate. I'm not so, like, it's more like I'm trying to say like, I can't, the problem would be more obvious if there was a way to tell. I could see, oh, this really is an epidemic. Right. You could see it. If when we walked in here tonight, I smelled yeah. some weed. Now, I don't know if somebody was smoking weed or had a big Jeremy. sack of weed. Jeremy. Sure. Okay. <laughs> so, so if you walk in someplace because you've smoked a little weed maybe or smelled somebody who smoked me. some weed. That might have been the president. I don't know. But you might, you might know what weed president. smells like and you might smell some weed. But you don't know what heroin smells no. like. And it's in a little envelope or a little balloon so you'd never know what was in the room. It's hidden. It's secret. It's like jazz, man. Jazz music yeah, there's notes, and that's great. But the the beauty, the secret, the code is in the space between the notes. And that's where heroin lives, and the space is in between, man. You don't see it right in your face. You'll see it if you walk down Fifth and San Julian. Here in downtown LA. Right in downtown Los is Angeles. That the, is that the sexiness of the drug, in a way, for the addict? Mm, you mean the hidden, cool yeah. feature? Yeah, no one really knows what I'm up to. Yeah, I think that can be a part of the sexiness. Like, I got something going on that you squares don't get. For a little neurotic Jewish boy who grew up in Northern California, that can definitely be part of the puzzle. Now, um, you mentioned you were um, you were facing prison right. for eight and a half years? Yeah. 
Tell me about that. <laughs> so, um, heroin's a big felony, which makes heroin expensive. Well, if you don't have a bunch of money and you've pawned all your musical equipment and you can't really get a job, you're going to need to do some things in order to get your heroin. Some of us steal candy bars. Some of us steal a pallet of laptop computers from the gas company in downtown Los Angeles. Without someone be making I'm just you? saying that things happen, and who knows what a person might get up to. Some How of many are computers smart. are in a pallet? 144. <laughs> I'm just saying. Right. So you'd, things, you'd made the move happen. down from San Francisco. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So there was a bunch of dope cases like, Mr. Kane, we found you with heroin, and you have to go to jail. And then there were these other things about burglaries and crimes and you know, so you had multiple counts against you with a bunch right. of crimes. Right, right, right. And so did the the city wanted or state wanted to put you in? Oh, the state. The state wanted to put <laughs> you in prison. Yes. For eight and a half years. They wanted to, and they were willing to roll the dice and say, "Well, you know, you don't seem like a gangster. You don't seem like a diehard criminal. You seem like an idiot who's got a dope habit." We will give you one more, one more second, 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 second chance. You can go to this halfway house in downtown, and maybe they could do something for you. And How old were you? I was 34. It's like a man. I was kind of grown up, yeah. You're getting to be close to, I mean, you know, you're not a child. Here's the gross thing, right? I'm smart. I have some talents, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. When I was released from jail the last time, here's what I brought to the world. Um, a pair of shorts with no boxers, um, a cigarette. Honestly, I had one cigarette in my bag. What was the brand? It was a Marlboro Red, but it was bought from the $2 place downtown. <laughs> it, was, it was a Mexican Marlboro. Um, a t-shirt and these 99 cent store plastic sandals that were held together with electrical tape. That's what I brought to the table. That's all you had to your name. Right. With all the brains and all the personality. You were a college grad? I was not. <laughs> no, you they did go invited, to college, right? I did, but they invited me to leave fairly quickly. Okay. Because you were partying too much? I mean, you know, I was non-compliant. They wanted you to, you know, go to class. Right. What did your t-shirt say when you on um, that? Do you remember? Did it have a saying or anything? Like It didn't have a saying. It had several stains and a cigarette burn. From when you had been arrested? Um, no, it was just a dirty ass t-shirt and I didn't have anything else to wear. It you were was homeless? really bad. Yeah, it was gross. So you, you were taken out of the jail and brought right to this rehab home? Yeah. Yeah. It was downtown Los Angeles on Lake Street, right near where I used to score dope all the time. <laughs> How long were you in jail? Uh, the last time it was only like two months. How many times days. have you been in jail? I don't remember. More than 10? Mm, yeah, up and down the state, more than 10. More but than 20? No. What's the worst crime you've been committed to get your drugs? <sighs> oh, God. You know... That um, you've been convicted of. Let's say, I don't want you to incriminate yourself. So here's the great thing about being a responsible, productive member of. You can go get your records expunged if you've been clean a long time and done everything right. Okay. All of my records have been expunged. Okay. Well, if you don't want to... Go revisit that. Yes, yeah, some of it. I mean, it's kind of funny. And we talked about some of the gross stuff and the grosser, the better. But most of them, are, you know, there's no romantic drama. They're property crimes and you know, burglaries and stuff. And that's all that is. And you, you attribute it to the pain you were suffering from due to the trauma of your childhood? 
Um, I attribute the crimes to being addicted to heroin and being very antisocial person. Um, perhaps being a very antisocial person may be in part attributed to uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. You're, you come from a Jewish family? Oy, look at this now. But Jews aren't supposed to be uh, addicts, right? That's the stereotype. That's the Jewish the, community. That's the stereotype that the Jews would like to have you. The Chinese and the Koreans would also like to have you believe the same thing. That it's only... That what? this is a problem for um, people like George W. Bush. Hmm. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. Oh. Now, you're a, I, we've talked about you being a sober coach, mm. and I never really got into that. So can you give us like, you know, the one minute kind of... <laughs> yeah. I know, and I know what you do is deserves a lot more than a minute yeah, yeah, yeah. but just the head headlines of what what you're doing so simply um my little team and i bring treatment home instead of sending you again to rehab we bring rehab to your house and your family for an extended period of time we live with you or live adjacent to you we model recovery oriented behavior for you we broker recovery resources for you and we show you instead of teaching you in a rehab where you're surrounded by 50 or 60 other dope fiends with less than 30 days, we surround you with healing, healed people who actually show you how to be clean out in the world on your terms. Are you talking about the actual uh, person you provide? Yes. That they kind of create that example of yes. what a sober life looks like? Yes, that's right. And these are recovered addicts themselves? Every one of them. And every one of them has experienced relapse. And when I say recovered, am I misspeaking? Should it be no. recovering? Nope. They've recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Because it's a bit controversial in the addiction world. Some would call themselves a recovering addict, while others yeah. would... And, and they would shun someone saying, I'm a recovered, right. because right. of the idea that's not taking it one day at a time. I understand and I agree. So it's interesting. The guys who invented Alcoholics Anonymous... They called themselves recovered alcoholics, and the guy who invented Narcotics Anonymous called himself a recovered addict. So I don't have any problem saying I'm a recovered addict. Right. You know what I mean? And recovered addicts can still become unrecovered. Absolutely. Look, you cover your head with a hat. If you take off the hat, your head is uncovered. Right. I know that. And that's yeah. the truth. I know it sounds yeah. like a silly joke, but you're right. It's it. I mean, by the use of, we're talking semantics and yeah. that kind of yeah. thing. We're almost out of time. Um, is there something that we haven't covered in this, this story about Philip that you think is important for us to discuss? Uh, that's a fine question. There are probably several things. The one that jumps to mind is this. It's heartbreaking that the notion of addiction as anything other than a disease still exists in our culture. The reason for the hiding and the reason for the shame is a puritanical vision of what it means to be an addict or an alcoholic. People on the outside look at an addict and assume he is only a pleasure seeker because that's all they understand. Anybody who knows addicts, who comprehends what's happening inside the mind, heart, and soul of an addict understands you're dealing with a tortured soul who needs help. Relapse oughtn't be a shame place. Relapse ought to be a sign that there's a reservation in somebody's recovery program. If you're diabetic and your blood sugar goes high, 
You don't try to hide it from everybody. You go get it treated so that it comes down. That's how this needs to be treated. And it was not, and it still is not. Wow. That was really uh, a great point you made. I'm glad. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to share? You know what? If you're an addict, if you're listening to this show, if you're struggling, this is not a sales pitch. There are all kinds of people, all kinds of places all over the world who are only waiting to help. Some are going to charge you money. Some are going to do it for fun and for free. Don't stop looking. Do you do counseling on the side as an individual? And when I say on the side, I know you're mostly spending a yeah. sober coach where you might, the coaching thing where you might actually literally live with someone or have your... Yeah. Your coworkers. I do some non-traditional therapy work. Okay. Yes, I do. So if people wanted to learn more about you, they would go to sober uh, soberchampions.com. Is that correct? Soberchampion.com. Champion.com. Right. Okay, great. And there's a way to email you there and, sure. and get a hold of you. Sure, sure. Okay. Well, um, I first of all, I, I want to thank all of you for listening. And um, I hope that this helped in some way. It definitely helped me. I, I mean, your insights are just incredible. And it's just it's just been such a great conversation. I've learned so much um where I, I just it's an odd thing i told you uh off mic prior to the show i came into the studio very uncomfortable and a little bit angry and agitated irritable uh after doing all this research on on um you know philip seymour yeah. hoffman's death and i'm leaving our conversation now lighter yeah, there's with a more of, hope. Yeah, there's hope inside the room right now. Yeah, right. and that's, I guess that's what happens in some of these meetings, correct? Right, right. Well, sure. It, it, it happens in churches, mosques, and synagogues. It happens in therapy. It happens in meetings. It happens wherever human beings disclose to one another and become intimate with one another. Then there can be hope. Yeah, yeah. and I want to thank you for your right. openness, sharing <laughs> your story. I mean, it really was special. Thank you. Thank it's you. A, I'm so grateful that we've had a chance to meet. Me too. And I'll Mike. look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you. Well, thank you all again for listening. And again, this has been uh, Vic Cohen's It's a Fair Question. I'm Vic Cohen, and it's a fair question. It's a fair question. It's a fair question. I'm Vic Cohen, and it's a fair question. It's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair question. I'm Vic Cohen, and it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair quest, quest, question.